everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we are kind of wrapping up this streak we've been on lately of showcasing great artists that are primarily from the 70s by hearing from Ambrosia drummer Burley Drummond. Isn't that the greatest name for a drummer of all time? So everybody primarily knows Ambrosia from a couple of their really soft rock hits like Biggest Part of Me and how that you're listening to right here and How Much I Feel... But really, if you dive into all their albums, they were all over the place. They were, in fact, they were, it was a lot of prog stuff, prog, pop, rock. Between 75 and 82, they put out five albums, each one very different. And uh, the hits have never been completely indicative of what the band is all about. You really kind of have to dive in to each album to know what they're about. And we talk about that in here. So now... One thing that most people know is that I originally the songwriting was primarily done by David Pack. He was the lead singer. And he has not been a member of Ambrosia for a long time. Ambrosia's back out there. They're touring. They have a new lead singer. I got to see them a few months ago. It was great. But David is not a part of that world anymore. There's some you know, there's some tension there, but I think at this point everyone's sort of in a good place where they are separately. So uh, we talk a little bit about that. We don't get into it too heavily. But anyway, these days they go on these great tours with bands like Orleans that I saw them with, Stephen Bishop, our old friend, uh, that kind of stuff. And he's in as good a place as he's ever been, Burley. And he works with his wife on a side project called Tin Drum that is also excellent. So he is just about the sweetest guy in the world. And so I'm, I'm glad that you guys get to hear this. I will tell you, I completely botched a couple of songs on here. I normally pride myself on getting the, you know, the names and the songs and all that kind of stuff, that all that info really tight and locked down. And I blew it on a couple of things in here. I'm sort of embarrassed about it. But anyway, I think you'll enjoy this. He called me from his home in L.A. So thanks again for doing this. So I got to tell you, I just saw you guys in concert for the first time probably two months ago. Oh. I live in Denver, and um, oh, right. you came. We were, yeah, yeah, you came to Greeley, which is a town about an hour north of me that I've actually never been to before. And it was you and Al Stewart and Pure Prairie League and Orleans. Right. And um, I had had John Hall of Orleans on the show. And so I wanted to make sure I went up there and saw it, and I loved it. And it was it was just the venue was beautiful. It reminded me, and I I hope I I mean this as a compliment. It reminded me sort of of a really nice high school auditorium. It was kind of uh -huh. about that size, right? Sort of more of like a playhouse or a theater. You guys came on last, and uh, it was just the most satisfying evening of you know these four great bands. They hit the songs that you want to hear. They all sound great. It's a beautiful venue. It's a beautiful night. Oh, I really glad, love that. Yeah, good. I'm glad it came off. Uh, okay. You know, um, sometimes you do shows like that. You, you know, it's, it, when you go out on the road, and you, even though we had a, a mixer that knew us, you know, you never really know what you're walking yeah. into. You just hope for the best. And There's a moment when, and you probably know this, but Al Stewart comes out, and he does three or four songs just by himself on the acoustic guitar. Yes. And then, then he starts telling, and he tells stories in between, and they're so wonderful. And he starts telling he the story the of Year of the Cat, yeah. right? Yeah. And he introduces Ambrosia, and Ambrosia comes out. And I didn't realize until getting ready to talk to you that Mary, the keyboardist, is also your wife. Yes, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So and she comes we, out. 
and she plays yeah. that riff from your, which is one of the most iconic piano riffs ever, and she nails it. You know? Yeah. Uh No, he's uh, yeah. It, she's wonderful. He's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You guys probably yeah. go way back. Uh, well, my wife and I do. We, we're 34 years. We we've been playing with him probably off and on for probably about 20 years now. Yeah. So I want to tell you how I became an Ambrosia fan because it's kind of a it's a twisted story, and I wonder if my experience is similar to what other people's experiences are. So about 10 years ago. I decide I'm going to buy the Ambrosia Anthology Greatest Hits album. And I do this based on really, I only know biggest part of me and how much I feel, you know, the two big ones. So I'm thinking, I'm going to love this because I love those songs and I buy it on iTunes. And so, and then you get in there and the rest, not not everything fits that same soft rock mold of those two songs. No, 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 yeah, no, we, uh, that came much later. Um, yeah. There's so much uh, that's been said about what we are. But uh, we, you know, our our earliest influence was was basically everybody, but very strong. At the time we started recording uh, the Prague, uh, you know, we were kind of America's answer to Genesis. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we were that kind of wow. thing. You know, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. Yeah. But the thing that, uh, the thing that kind of, took us over the edge was uh, one night the band happened to stumble on the whiskey and this band called King Crimson was playing mm-hmm. and you know and uh, I wasn't in the band yet I was I was the last one to join okay. uh, but the, the three people the three uh, others uh, Chris, Joe and Dave went in and they basically had their heads torn open you know <laughs> by, this, by King Crimson they had never seen anything like it and so you know they immediately started looking for a new drummer because of Seeing that, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that's where I came in, and I, and I you came could keep in. Up. Well, I could keep up, but I had a van too, so that. Oh. You know. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no. Yeah. Of course. Okay. Yeah, I'm being facetious, but uh, <laughs> but but it didn't it didn't hurt. Let's put it that way. So. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. So all that to say uh, that yeah. But our influences were really everything. Of course, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, yeah. uh, Traffic. Traffic was a huge one. Love Traffic. Uh, you know, and I was I was uh, the ethno guy. I was way into African mm-hmm. music, and I mm-hmm. was in an African drum ensemble. UCLA, you know, heavy into the ethnic thing, and, and jazz. And Chris was our resident blues man. And Joe was the singer-songwriter, Jackson Brown. And, and Dave was the Beach Boys. But you you put it all together and it uh, you know it was like the yeah. Beach Boys doing African music with a blues tent you know yeah so yeah. and that's the way that's the way how it came out you know and it became a stew hence the name Ambrosia I'm guessing right? yeah, yeah yeah well the nectar as the nectar that kept the Greek gods immortal you know <laughs> uh, and, but you know of course today it's a mixture of fruit and nuts you know right in, in the dictionary in England it's rice pudding so uh, you know right that's what I think of. Right. But at least at least we're not Toto, you know, which okay. Japan well, is true. You know, which is true. To- toilet yeah, beat in Japan, so Right. Yeah, when I uh, when I first started listening to anthology I I just would get so confused. You know, there's Cowboy Star on there. Praise the prairie and pass the king. 
Did I did is, yeah. did I make a mistake? This is I bought it through iTunes. This is this is still Ambrosia, isn't it? Wow, I'm so yeah. confused, you know. Now, have you had a chance to hear the first couple albums? On oh yeah, album? I've heard them oh. all. This was oh, like okay. ten years ago, and okay. so it, it's that's what yeah that's the end of the story is that I it sparked my curiosity so much because I realized these guys are not just these hits. They're not there's. So much more going on, and which leads obvious to the obvious question, which is, you know, when you started making those hits, as things started to sort of evolve a little bit, starting with Life Beyond L.A. and then especially going into 180, was this a conscious decision on your part? Were you starting to feel like, you know, we love this prog music, but we'd, we'd actually really rather have a hit, and if we no, don't chase uh, things well, up, we'll do it. Uh, well, not, uh, you know, this is another kind of weird story. Well, while we were we were recording in North Hollywood at um, at this studio uh, in North Hollywood, and a block, you know, we were we were pretty destitute. We were broke, you know, and uh-huh. like, so and we were we probably did twenty albums the first, you know, like po- at least five to ten other albums a year for other people to yeah. support ourselves while we did our own albums. And we would do that during the day, and then at night we went and played a bar down the street, uh, five five nights a week. Uh, yeah. This is while we were recording, before we were touring or anything like that. Now the bar happened to be a, a female gay bar. You know, oh, okay. Uh, lesbian bar, for better term, whatever. So uh, we had a you know we backed up a girl singer who. You know, big boobs, and you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the girls, all the other girls loved her, and and so we did Stone R and B, you know, five sets wow. a night, you know, and then we drag ourselves out of bed in the morning and go back in the studio. So we played this stuff nonstop, you know, yeah. and on the first couple albums, the closest we would ever we ever got to that kind of music was maybe holding on.
that, and it creeps in. So all yeah. of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, songs like uh, "Dancing by Myself," like on the third album. By the time we did the third album, this R&B thing had had become another facet of what we okay. do. came out of that and and then eventually biggest part of me living on my own those yeah. things you know started coming out of what we were playing you know so i mean you saying this it almost sounds like the those songs that became more radio friendly <clears throat> were a result of, of more of an openness to music and what was out there versus a consolidation it wasn't guys who want to be prog stars thinking we'd rather be played on the radio let's trim this down it's more we like everything, and these are so, these songs that we can write perform now. They fit within the same arsenal as all the other stuff that we're really into. We just like to play it all. Yeah, I mean, we do. I mean, uh, I mean, and plus, we were doing session work, so we had to do. We had to be versatile. We had to True. play. We had to play anything. You know, we had to yeah. play swing, and you know, and that that kind of came out in songs like Apothecary and. Uh, even Mama Frog, you know, we were, that was kind of the avant-garde jazz yeah. side of us. I must say the band uh, lacked musical prejudice. Mm, you know, okay. uh, we were very open-minded, and if it was good, it was good. And yeah. and we really tried, but we were kind of using the model of the Beatles in the fact that you know their catalog was so varied. Yeah. And all, and, but but every but what they always had was a good song and a good melody, and then they did the best arrangement 
they could for that song. And that's the way we approached it, which yeah. is kind of funny because if the Beatles came along today, I don't know if they'd have a chance because they, oh, okay. you know, they they would have tried to pigeonhole them into one thing, yeah. and of, co- of course they weren't one thing. They you know right. they were they were too literate for that. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that's, but that that backfired on us too because, not backfired, but um, you know when the first two records were out and we were touring and going to all the radio interviews and stuff, you know, it was mostly FM stations at that time that we would go oh. to. And uh, a few that were playing Holding On. and But, um, you know, we were kind of FM darlings, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, a young male audience, you know, uh, cutting-edge music. Sure. Uh, you know, we'd we'd play on bills with Rush and people like yeah. that. There you know, go. and and then, you know, like, and then... We did came out with Life Beyond LA, and How Much I Feel comes out, and it's a you know it's a big hit. Well, I don't know how this whole business started. Of you thinking that I had been untrue. But if you think that we'd be better parted. sudden we'd go to a fm radio station and it would be like you guys deserted us and you know how could you do that you know and it was like oh my god you know it's like right. wow maybe you guys you know you guys take it more seriously than we do you know it's like right. i mean we we take the music seriously but we didn't think that you had to live and die by you know yeah. like you could you couldn't have a you know a, a multitude of expressions it was just like True. So anyway, it was very interesting, you know. Yeah, I bet. Um, and I can, attest, I can attest to this. When I saw you guys live a couple of months ago, I was surprised that it wasn't a straightforward regurgitation. It's not bad. I don't mean for it to, but it wasn't a straightforward retelling of the greatest hits as you know them on the, ra- you know, on the radio or whatever. Right, right. You threw well, in some of the progier stuff and some of the more challenging stuff, and I thought that was a really gutsy move. But that's oh. really who you are. I mean, that's what I'm getting at, I guess, is that if you think you know who Ambrosia is because it's some soft rock hit, you're wrong, probably, because there's way more to the story than that. Well, I, yeah, I hope so. You know, um, yeah, I, I, hope that com- I hope that comes across. And it seems to, It's you know, it's funny, back then, there was more of a disparity between the, the prog and the hits. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit, even though, 
even though our hits like Biggest Part of Me, it's not an easy song. It's as it, in its own way, quarterly, it's as complicated as any prog song. You know, I mean, it's harder for a keyboard player to learn Biggest Part of Me than it is to learn a Yes song. You know what I mean? Because of the chordal complexity. But you know, nowadays. When we play live, I don't. Th- I mean, you, maybe you can attest to this or not. It doesn't seem to be that different. I mean, not not that it's not different, but it it all seems to work together. Yeah, you know, it it's like mm-hmm. so. So I like to say we're a prog rock pop band. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, you're about right. That's true. So yeah. one of the things we talk about on here is sort of the transitions in people's lives, and sometimes as sensitively as we can, sometimes the transition are financial ones. And I'm guessing you're a, you were mentioning that prior to the first album in 75, you guys are a struggling band. You know you're playing gigs with, uh, playing on other people's albums to kind of make a living and everything. There had to have been a point, Life Beyond L.A. comes out, and biggest part of me, and you, have, you now have a certified hit that is, or I'm sorry, How Much I Feel, I got it backwards. How Much I Feel comes out, you have a certified hit, your life had to change. It had to probably. Was there a part of you that was like, this actually feels really good. I can handle uh, the success stuff. Well, okay. I mean, uh, you touched on a pretty interesting thing, and and uh, okay. So, um, when how much I feel came out, and even the biggest part of me, and all through that era, the the writer of the actual hits uh, was was Dave Pack because. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a manager who owned uh, 100% of our publishing. We were signed to his production company, which was signed to the label. So uh, we moved from one label to another. It cost us a million dollars that we had oh, to pay boy. back. Yeah. So <clears throat> to be honest, when Ambrosia stopped around 1983, I believe, we stopped for about six years, I didn't start making uh, money until Ambrosia stopped. And then really? I started, yeah. And then I, I went out and started playing in the real world, and that's when I started, you know, making money to buy a house and, you know, yeah. have kids and have a family. And it had to stop. Ambrosia had to stop because of the disparity of the income. You know, if you didn't write a, a lyric or the or the melody, you know, you you were out of luck. Yeah. You, could arrange, you could arrange the whole song, and it didn't matter, you mm. know. So... And that's just the, that was kind of the influence of our manager at the time, who you know, in, in essence, kind of forced the band to break up because it just got so uh, unequitable yeah. that uh, that you know it it just it it, it just the the vibe was. was so just, even uh, now, Dave Pack wrote a lot of these songs. Was when you say the the uh, disparity in in money was it? Was it that he was seeing a ton more money than everyone else and that was causing problems, or was it this manager that was basically pocketing most of everything and the you guys manager sort of was, split yeah. what was left over? Yeah, the manager was uh, the manager and Dave were, were making the money at the time. Okay. So okay. Uh, so Dave from his songwriting and, uh, of course, the manager from the publishing and the, you know, the production money and all those kind of things. So... Joe made a little bit more because he he wrote he co-wrote uh, How, uh, Holding On to Yesterday, mm-hmm. but Chris and I, you know, really we made stuff on on the album cuts and you know because uh, sure. we we all wrote uh, you know I was kind of like the George Harrison to their Lennon and McCartney <laughs> right. you know so uh-huh. uh, so you know I always had you know one or two songs on an album uh, they maybe be a B side or you know or 
but we all invested the same amount of time in making the album and you know and uh, the rehearsals and the recording so it just mostly it was the tension with the the manager you know okay. uh, you know holding uh, so much of it and yeah. know, the, his greed that we couldn't we just couldn't uh, it just wasn't a, a it just yeah. wasn't, it didn't feel good anymore sure and, sure and so we we uh we uh, we broke up for like six years and then uh, and Dave tried to go do a solo career and uh, you know and that didn't I don't in my opinion you know I I can't speak for him maybe he thought it was sure. successful but it, right. I don't think it really went where he hoped it would go yeah and uh, so then he tried to put the band back together we got back together and we started playing some more and uh, you know and uh, he was doing some production stuff and you know and he so he was in and out of gigs and and uh, that became tense and we finally mm-hmm. had to uh, move on without him yeah so the, three, the three of us are still together Joe Chris and uh right and Burley and uh well you saw the band recently I think yeah. I, this this band is pretty solid now and it is and uh Ken is a great singer and he does yeah. well on those songs and recreating those songs. I mean, I have to ask, what is is everybody are are you friends with Dave or is there is there tension there? I will go on record saying that Dave is one of the most talented musicians and vocalists that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. His I talent, I, I will never, never uh, deny his talent. You know, something I've always been curious about at the end of Rhode Island, the, the last song is called Ending. And it's the last song on your last album. Is that the point? Were you sort of sending a message, everybody? Just so you know, this might be the end here. No, no. I mean, it's, it is very odd that, yes, it, I mean, that just seemed like a fitting song for that particular, you know, for okay. anyone. For that album. I didn't know if you were speaking beyond this album. Like, we know no. this is the end of the band. You guys just don't know it yet. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, maybe Dave has some secrets on that. that okay. he, didn't, he didn't reveal, but no, we were. I was, I was definitely not under that impression. But uh, the funny thing about that album was we had this dinner one night after we had done uh, 180 and, uh, you know, we were somewhere in the middle of getting ready to psyching up for another album. And, you know, we were riding high, a couple of hit records, yeah. you know, 
and we had dinner with Bob Regeer from Warner Brothers, who, who you know uh, was kind of the artsy guy from the label. And he goes, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" You know, uh-huh. he goes, "He goes, I told I told the guys at Warner Brothers to sign you because I wanted that progressive, you know, uh, I wanted the stuff from the first two records." Yeah. You know, and and we're we're like, what? You know. Yeah. So we, you know, we go, okay, let's go, you know? Sure. And so we do, yeah, we do Rhode <laughs> Island, and, you know, we're we're amping back up and getting, you know, putting some more muscle into it and the whole thing. Sure. And But during the course of doing the record, he dies. Oh. He, he passes oh. away. And we oh. come out with the, we come out with this record, and we hand it to Warner Brothers, and they go, they basically go, what's this? <laughs> And we go, we, we go, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. it was really weird, and so oh, that's kind, that's kind of, that's kind of what happened. That coupled with the tension with, with the manager and the whole, you know, whole, you know, yeah. it, it it needed to stop, but it, you know, it it was it was really kind of like a a shock to everybody, and so. Uh, you pro- you probably didn't know though when that came out that that would be the. I mean, even when you guys probably broke up, I don't know if maybe you thought this is the end of Ambrosia's original recording career. We're not going to be putting out any more albums after this. Yeah, but you know, it was it was a good thing, you know. Okay. And okay. and it's funny. It's like even though that happened, and everybody kind of sensed that it was the end, nobody was going, "Hey guys, we can't let it go." You know, everybody was going, "I need to get away. I need to get oh, away." You know. Okay. So it was I didn't know if it was more bittersweet. Like this could, be, guys, this is our last show. Let's get a picture, a group hug. A, you know, sounds like everyone was ready for a change of scenery. No, you know, I mean, for me personally, uh, when it stopped, um, uh, it allowed me to not only you know start playing with other people and, and getting you know my musical thing happening to a greater extent, uh, but I, you know, I, it afforded me to meet my my wife. Awesome. And you know, I, I wasn't. I was kind of a mess, you know. Uh, really? Like, but, forgive me, drugs or yeah, whatever. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, yeah, no. I mean, I was. You know, I wasn't uh, in my best. Uh, I wasn't in my clearest mind. Let's put it that way. Okay. And and it allowed me to meet my wife, who basically let me know that you know if, uh, that if I wanted to be with her, I needed to be. You know, I needed to get yeah. it together. And sure. and I and you know I realized that she was not worth losing, so I got it together. And uh, and you know and we and I had a family and yeah. uh, I had a beautiful uh, marriage and and uh, and my life my life began. That's you know so it cool. wasn't uh, it wasn't just being on a on a tour bus and yeah. and where are we you know where are we tonight yeah. you know and so uh, I'm I'm grateful that it stopped. Yeah. You know, because um, you know it, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Awesome. So now, now when we reformed, it's like I can appreciate it for what it is, but it's not yeah. all there is. You know, yeah, yeah. that's great. Wow, yeah. and thirty-one years. That's how long you guys have been married, right? Thirty-four. Thirty-four. Oh, it was thirty-one on your website. So that was thirty-four. Oh yeah, what? Well, yes, that's thirty-four. Good for you. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, wow. and my my son is a uh, is a a great drummer. He's got this band called the Everly Brothers Experience, 
They're oh, you know they're, they did 170 dates in the last year and a half, and they're just like, yeah, he's you know you know and uh, so yeah so great yeah Very life good. is good. I have a daughter. Great. She's USC. You know, great singer. Just That's incredible. Yeah. Now, when you have you been able to have you been able to make a living as a musician this entire time? I mean, you mentioned that after the band ended, things actually picked up in terms of finances. I'm guessing by, you know, being a, picking up gigs here and there, people want the drummer of Ambrosia, so you can command probably a higher price or whatever. Or were there lean years where you had to go do something else? Oh, something? oh yeah, yeah. No, I never had to do anything but music. But, you know, I, I, oh, yeah, I mean, but, but I would be, you know, I would, uh, I did every, everything I could. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, I would, I would play the jazz gig for 50 bucks and I would go play the wedding and I would, and I would do four, four casuals on a weekend, you know, and, uh, I, there were, there was a couple, couple of years where, you know, I, I worked my butt off, you know, like I practically lived in my car driving to a gig. You know, and uh, but that's what it took, and then, and then I started producing, and uh, and uh, got a studio. My wife and I formed a band called Tin Drum. Excellent stuff, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, everybody, let me break in for a little business here for a minute. Um, I wasn't able to get to any of this last week because, as you may remember, I was um, on vacation in Hawaii, which was beautiful, by the way. But I want to thank everybody who has shared our last couple of episodes. Uh, John Oates and then David Jenkins from Pablo Cruz. That was a fun one. I got a lot of, I heard from a lot of good things from all, from everyone out there on both of those episodes. I thought they both turned out really well. I'm glad you guys liked them too. So we have kind of a long list here of shares. Let me get to all of them. Jay Sabluski, Kathy Carr, Mike Clancy, Jamie Kyle. That's David Jenkins' wife from uh, uh, Pablo Cruz. Kerry Carlson, Bud Verge, I See Greg, David Ace Gutierrez, Glory Days Radio, Andrew Jacobs, Grown Up Rock and Sonny Pooney, John Oates shared his episode, thank goodness. Holland Oates did not. And that would have been the real, uh, that would have been the change maker right there, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. Hub Rigel, Save Rock and Metal, Shawana Lee, Rock Solid, and Pat Francis, who was very encouraging about our John Oates episode doing. He didn't have to do any of that, but he really drummed up a lot of anticipation. I'm glad. I hope it didn't disappoint anybody. I thought it was a really good one, but hopefully you guys did too. Uh, our friends at the Curious World podcast, that's Vandal. Joe Becht, God Save the Queen podcast, I believe. Jason Simons, Anthony Porter, Mark Alden Taylor. Thank you to all of you for sharing and keeping the word out there. And I have to give you all a special thank you because briefly, for a few minutes the other day, we were back in the top 200. I, I honestly don't know how often we're in the top 200, if ever. I assume that we're not, so I never look. But a couple of times uh, I'm told, usually by Pat Francis, that we're in there. And we were number 104 the other day. And I think that's good. I, maybe we're normally higher than that. I don't think so. But um, anyway, that that is because of people sharing and getting the word out there and because of um, reviews. I, I don't really know how all that works. I think it's some kind of a combined algorithm around new subscribers mixed with new reviews, mixed with downloads, but all of those are in comparison to what you no- what that particular podcast normally gets. 
not compared to other podcasts. So I think because we got some, we got a few new reviews recently and some new subscribers, um, I th- maybe that's what got us jumped back up there. And I have to say thank you to a couple of Decibel Geek mentioned mentioned us recently. Kiss FAQ mentioned us recently. So thanks to all of you who are getting the word out there. I want to read a, read the new reviews. This is Three Chords CR, five stars, one of my favorites. A great podcast interviewing musicians. The episodes cover the ups and downs of the artist's career, including how they started out, backstories to songs, and how they make a living. A good listen for someone starting out in the business. Even if you aren't interested in the artist's music, they may have a great story. That's great. Thank you very much for that one. Okay, here's a short but sweet one from Swan. I don't know what that means, but that's what it is. Swan. Love this show. Five stars. This is a great show. I love John and his enthusiasm. Thank you, Swan. I would like to request a prefab sprout or Aztec camera interview. Those are both great ideas. Um, For whatever reason, I get the impression Patty McAloon. It's McAloon or McAlooney? I think it's McAloon. Anyway, Patty from uh, Prefab Sprout. I don't think he does a lot of media. I know he was on the Soda Jerker podcast a couple of years ago, and it was great. And he was great. And and I'm thinking for a guy who supposedly kind of has sworn off me, the media, he's coming off wonderful. So I guess I should try that. I like them, and I love Aztec Camera. I've had Roddy Frame on my wish list for a long time, and I just... I just haven't gotten around to it. Uh, it's uh, There's so many people on, the, on my list, guys. I don't get to them very quickly, and I'm sorry. It's that uh, there's always like 20 people in the air, you know, I've uh, that I'm juggling. I get in kind of a mood where I think, ooh, I'm in the mood to talk to this person, and I'm in the mood to go listen to all of their stuff, which is what I have to do to get ready to talk to them. Or I'm in the mood to research this, and then I reach out to them, and maybe I don't hear back, And but I'm trying to retain that information too, and, not, and then I... But that that's going on with like 15 people at once. Anyway, I need to get to ask that camera. I like them a lot. And then one more from Zan's, I'm sorry, Dan Zapruder. This is a long one. Five stars, music geek gold. The premise of the hustle would be enough to make it fascinating no matter who was putting it out. Conversations with music makers who've had their moment or era of fame, but who are presently, for whatever reason, not exactly household names. It's very much for music geeks, so if you're the kind of person who wants to know what Tommy Two-Tone is up to nowadays, then yes, this is for you. But what really makes the hustle shine is its host, John Lamoureux. That is so nice. Thank you. While a big angle of the show is how musicians support themselves through leaner times, the tone is never leering, never condescending. I've always hated the idea that if a working artist isn't currently famous, they're targets for derision. Lamoureux is the exact opposite. He treats the guests with total respect. I'm glad you pick up on that. I I really try to do that. Uh, In fact, it's better than that. John clearly does tons of research for everyone he interviews, up to and including their latest release. And for most guests, he's even an enthusiastic fan of their work. That's very true. This enthusiasm is contagious, and when he finds something lasting and positive within the guest's legacy, as he always does, when he says, good for you, as he usually does, it truly makes me smile. That almost chokes me up. I That is so sweet of you to say. Thank you. I'm just trying to be encouraging to these people. They're, they're sweet enough to give me their time, and they put out great stuff. They deserve to be honored, and that's what I'm trying to do here. 
uh, time and again, what could, in the hands of a lesser host, be just a morbid, where did, all, where did it all go wrong conversation, instead becomes an honest, generous celebration of a life's work. It's an impressive feat, and even with guests whose work I'm not at all familiar with, it's always rewarding and heartening to listen. I can't recommend the show enough. Thank you so much. That is like the sweetest thing that anyone has ever said to me or to us or about this show or whatever. Thank you so much, Zan Zapruder. Dan, I keep saying Zan. Dan Zapruder. Uh, Speaking of sweetness, a couple of you have mailed me some really excellent CDs lately. And let me clarify that no one has to do that. Um, But you know I like physical CDs. And uh, a couple people, namely, so... Paul Hicks, I think his name, I know him as Hicks on tw- on Twitter. I think your name's Paul Hicks, if I remember right, because that's what the return address. Uh, he sent me an, uh, this three-disc set from Australia of 12-inch remixes of 80s Australian pop bands. And some of it are people we know that we've had on before, like Real Life's on there and Pseudo Echo. Some of it's Ice House and... Um, Boom Crash Opera and Split Ends and these bands that I know, but a lot of it is stuff I don't know, and it's great. And I so I am so grateful for that one. And then Michael Street is so sweet. He mailed me a couple of CDs. One is from this like prog pop band called Night Flight Orchestra, and it's new. It's new stuff, but it sounds like early 80s stuff. So good and even better. And I want to recommend this to everyone. A band, I believe they're Italian, and they're called Lionville. And they sound like you are listening to Survivor circa 1985 on the best AOR rock station you've ever heard. It is so good. I want everyone to hear Lionville. Get out there and check it out. Find it on YouTube, whatever. It is so good. It is just that 80s AOR rock and roll that we all grew up on that nobody makes anymore. And it's not, it's, they're not laughing. It's not a joke like Steel Panther or something like that. It is legit. Check out Lionville. So thanks to you guys for everything that you do. You don't have to do that. And, but I'm really, really grateful that you did. Um, okay. You guys know the deal about shirts. Uh, I think it's dropped off. I don't think we've sold very many recently, maybe because the holidays are over. I don't know. But if you want a shirt, please go in there and get one. The t-shirts are $19.99. They're at Amazon. You just type in Hustle Podcast merch or shirts or whatever. Find one. Pick it up if you want. We're really grateful when you do. Um, Now, some requests. Not a ton lately, which is good because I'm kind of very... um, deeply invested in my own thing right now. Uh, Jeff Penny recommended Mr. Mr. Again. Well, he didn't recommend because he know he follows the show. He knows what the deal is, but he was asking about an update. Again, I haven't heard anybody. I haven't heard back from anyone related to uh, uh, Mr. Mr. He recommended I go find some of the individual members who are not Richard Page because I've reached out to Richard Page before and I never heard back. Um, and that's a good idea. I need to get on that. I'm of course always sort of going for Richard Page, but, um, I should try one of the other guys. And then Rich Stapleton recommended Jane Cyberry, who is, that's one of those names I know, but I don't know that I know her music that well. I think I remember some of it from like back in the 90s, but I'm not, I would not in any way be a Jane Cyberry interest, uh, uh, expert. But he was telling me about the story. Apparently there's some really interesting stuff there. So I may have to look into Jane Cyberry. Jeff Lamson uh, requested Fugazi, which is a great suggestion. Uh, Ian, Mac- I always say McKay, but everyone else seems to say Mackay. Ian Mackay 
um, is a really interesting dude and learning about all of the straight edge, you know, not overcharging and he's vegetarian and all that kind of stuff would be such an interesting story. I will tell you that I'm a little intimidated because for whatever reason, I feel like there's somebody in, in order to talk to him, I would have to be an expert on him and that straight edge world. And I'm not, I mean, I don't feel like I am. Maybe, maybe I know more than most people. I don't know. I love Fugazi, but, um, I feel like I would have to be an expert and really know my stuff first. And so it's a little intimidating, but I should just get over that because Ian's probably a good dude. So maybe I'll try that one. Uh, Brian Morris, who sends a lot of requests, but I wanted to touch on these specifically. Liberty DeVito, who I have tried to find Liberty. Well, I know how to find him. I've tried to find him on Facebook and he's at his 5,000 friend limit. Um, I, I want to go to him. The only reason I don't is because we just covered Hired Gun. His story is told very eloquently in that documentary, if you guys haven't seen it. By the way, I'm still, they have never mailed me the Blu-rays to mail to all of you that won copies of those Blu-rays. They claim they did. They claim they got lost in the mail. They claim they were going to, uh, like two weeks ago, send me new copies. I've yet to see anything from those guys, and I'm really sorry. Um, but anyway, he was great in that, and... Um, there's another music podcast out there that I believe Hudra Gel turned me on to called, called I'd Hit That, and it's primarily with drummers, and he was on there, and that was great. He did a really good interview on there, and as I've mentioned before, I sort of lose enthusiasm when I know these people's stories are already out there covered very well by other people, and so I don't go after them as aggressively. That's the deal with Liberty, although I love Liberty. I would love to talk to him. Uh, Kurt Smith. I've mentioned many, many times the guys from Tears for Fears would be near, at or near the top of my wish list. And I've tried reaching out to Kurt many times and he's never replied. And he, I couldn't even get those guys to retweet our episode with Alita that was nothing but, you know, respectful and honorary to them. I, I can't get a hold of Kurt. Um, let's see, Marillion. That's another band that I know, but I don't know that much about so I would have to do a lot of research which I don't mind doing it's just uh getting right geared up for that work and then he requested somebody who's probably now like in our top five because I hear about I get requests for them all the time Justin Curie from Delamitri I just I mean to I just haven't done it yet in fact maybe I will set myself a challenge to reach out to Delamitri this week because I hear so many of you have requested Delamitri I got to get on that I will work on that one and then Ben Frazier, who also sends a lot of requests, but these are good ones too. Someone from Dead or Alive, who's obviously still alive, not Pete Burns. Uh, that would be interesting. And then Kim Wilde. Um, she, I would not, she's, I know her hits. I know she was a huge deal in England. Maybe she'd talk to me. I don't know. Um, those people who are huge in England, but not as big over here, they seem to be hard to reach. I tried to get Lisa Stansfield on here once and I never heard back from her either, but I'm open to talking to Kim. I would try that. And then I kind of got a no recently I wanted to tell you about. So uh, this one's long. I'm sorry, guys. This midsection, I'll keep it. I'll try to try to keep it shorter. But anyway, uh, Big Pig. Do you guys remember Big Pig? I um, so the keyboard. If I under, if I remember correctly, the keyboard player for Big Pig also plays with David Sterry in real life. And David, who's the nicest guy in the entire world, and also thank you to Susan McDonald, my Australian connection. Uh, he put me in touch with the sort of the founding member of Big Pig, whose name was Olay. And uh, he said Olay would do the podcast. So I reached out to Olay 
And I said, uh, Ole, I'd love to talk to you. Mostly I would like to talk to the lead singer, Shireen, because I'm always trying to get more women on the show. I didn't hear from him for a while. I tried him again. He finally wrote back and he said, I'm not interested in doing it. I haven't talked to Shireen in ages. She's on Facebook. You'll have to find her on there. Um, I have tried to connect with Shireen on Facebook many times. Her account doesn't appear to have been touched since around 2015. So I guess unless she suddenly gets back on Facebook and replies to me, uh, that big pig won't happen, which is a bummer because I was really gearing up to talk to them. Anyway, I think that's everything. That's like two weeks worth of business to cover in here. I hope this isn't too long. I'm sorry, gang. Let's get back to Burley. You know, and then I learned to produce and I learned to engineer and uh, you know, I have a studio, and there's a steady clientele coming in and out, and uh, so all those things that okay. you know I may or may not have ever developed if I was uh, if the things would have kept going. You know. Sure, sure. And how long has the? Um, I, it's not necessarily a nostalgic circuit, but you know these these shows that you get to play now, as Ambrosia, are they regular? And how long have they been going on for? I mean, is this ten straight years of? 50 yeah. gigs a year, and that's your primary source of income, and it's all good. And is that how yeah, it works, I, pretty I, much? Yes, I'd say it's you know you know 50 to 60 percent of my income now. And okay. what happened? What happened? What, it was great. It's, it was gradual. At first, it was just maybe 10 gigs a year, and then uh, along the way, probably about 10 years ago, I started going, "Hey, I think you know we could do more." And yeah. I actually got into soliciting for the band, you know, and uh, going out there and basically becoming an agent. And so now I've got, you know, by making a lot of contacts and years of doing it, and and, and the funny thing is about it, I enjoy it. I enjoy I enjoy talking to promoters. I enjoy talking to agents. And I mean, they're the they're the ones that are putting themselves on the line. They're the ones that are putting up a hundred grand for a show. Wow. You know, you know, and I mean, not just the band, but the lights, sure. the sound, the, da, 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 sure. the venue, you know, so I've come to respect a lot of these people and, and get to know them. And they're my friends. And so so over the course of 10 years, I've kind of got it up to where we're doing 60 to 70 dates a year. Great. And and uh, and everybody's able to make a living now in the band doing it you know and uh, yeah. you know i mean nobody's going to go buy a mansion right away but, no but i mean you know, what's better than making a living doing what you're good at and what you're happy with you know yeah it's the dream yeah, yeah. and it's and my son has watched me do it and now he's doing it with his band and you know great so it's you know i'm i'm happy my wife and cool. i get to be together beautiful you know we you know it's like yeah yeah um so I want to throw some names out at you, people that you've interacted with or worked with that um, I'm a fan of. And for starters, uh, you know, there was, what was it, 2011, you guys were on the Jimmy Fallon show when he was doing the yeah. Yacht Rock Week or whatever. I uh-huh. remember that so well. He had Robbie Dupree on back in the day and Stephen Bishop, all these people I love. What can you tell me about that experience? Oh, well, you know, first of all, I mean, it was, as you know, extremely exciting yeah yeah i mean we we played a gig the night before and drove like four hours to get there and i think you know we were just like kind of wiped out but <clears throat> but the, the the biggest i mean you know i might choke up telling you this was um oh. the biggest thrill was you know we were walking down the hallway to do our sound check or something and the roots were lined up on either side of the, of the hall and we're walking down and they bowed down to us and it was oh 
It was just like oh. really. Wow. Yeah. It was like uh, it was it was heavy. You know, it was like wow. Yeah. You know. Oh, I mean, that, good for that, you. That, that was such a nice gesture. It was just unbelievable. That, that is great. It was the next day that I bought the Ambrosia's greatest hits. <laughs> that's when yeah. I. That's when it happened. Um, yeah. Okay, tell me about Michael McDonald because oh. I, he, I think maybe my favorite Ambrosia's song is "Living on My Own." She's got a heart of steel. She don't care how I feel. on living on my own. I wish he was. <laughs> I thought he, I thought it's, I mean, I, it sounds to me like I hear him in there and then holding on to yesterday. No, uh, uh, no, we didn't know him when we did holding on to yesterday. Really? Uh, All this time I thought I'd been hearing Michael McDonald's sound. No, oh uh, he, he, the only one he's on is, uh, is a song later on called I Just Can't Let Go. What's the matter, baby? Is the truth too hard to hear? Well, I think you know I'm not the one who lies. And now it's all behind us. And we both play out our lives. But the years don't change the way I feel inside. So we play the game now. And don't feel the same. On, was, on my own, that's the song I wrote. Oh, and, uh, really? And I would have loved to have Michael McDonald on it, but, oh, but Michael McDonald is the single sweetest, most giving person I've ever known. Definitely in the musical world, with, without really? a doubt. He is—he's the most down to earth. Just—I mean—he'd give you the shirt off his back. He, he's like, right. uh, yeah. I mean, my my niece had. Uh, 
uh, you know, had a cancer benefit, and he flew all the way across the United States. You know, took drove straight to the venue. You know, played for free. Just you know, he he's that kind of guy. He is the mo- he is so special. I can't say enough about him. Yeah, he's just amazing. I'm glad. I've heard nothing but good things about him. Yeah, and I think he's great. And his voice, I mean, is one of the most unmistakable voices in history. And uh, all this time, I I've always thought that his voice or something was buried, sort of in there, in the core, in the core, among the other singers on Living on My Own or oh, yeah. Yesterday, all this time, and I. I'm wrong, but okay. Well, good. At least he's on your album, and he's a great guy, and I love him a lot, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about Bruce Hornsby. I didn't know until researching to talk to you that he was in the band early on. Is that right? No, not early on. He was in the band for the last six months. Oh, really? Yeah. He was in the band right when right you know when things fell apart. And, wow. uh In fact, Joe... Uh, went on to play with Bruce in the yeah. in the in the band called The Range, you know. When yeah, that I knew that. I'm a huge yeah. Bruce Hornsby fan, but I didn't know that the connection came from before with him playing with you guys. Yeah, uh huh. And uh, and and Michael McDonald was the one that discovered Bruce Hornsby on the road. So really? you know, yeah. So you know, Bruce moves out to uh, uh, Los Angeles, and I think he. I'm not sure, but I think he slept on. Uh, Michael McDonald's couch for a while. I'm not even sure, but somehow, you know, we, you know, because we're, because we're all together a lot. I mean, we were touring with the Doobie Brothers, all, you know, a lot. So we were the opening act for the Doobies quite a bit, and and we got to know Bruce, and you know, and then Bruce would hang out, and and you know, he's just he was a fine keyboard player. So you know, we were having problems with our keyboard player, you know, at the time, you know, all that stuff. So. Uh, he started playing with us, and uh, and uh, that that you know just one thing led to another, and then uh, then of course it fell apart. So he he went he went on, and Joe and uh, and Bruce went in to play for Sheena Easton for a while. And, uh, yeah, and then right after that, Bruce had been, you know was quite the writer, and he started you know the range and. One thing led to another. Huh. And, yeah, wow. he, Bruce is still Bruce was uh, Bruce is a huge inspiration for me personally. Really? I mean, I just I, I saw him. That. Yeah, we were at Virginia Beach, and uh, and he came. He's from Virginia, and he came to the gig and hung out. And uh, and you know, and I've been trying to. Uh, I, lately, I've been. Uh, obsessed with like redefining uh, my playing and and learning, you know, a lot of the things I didn't learn, you know, just moving on. And wow. and he and he said like he reached a point playing where uh, he realized that if he could go two ways, mm-hmm. he could just keep playing the hits and mm-hmm. you know slowly simmer out like yeah. ha- what happens to most artists, you know, they reach yeah. a plateau and it's just a slow decline. He said, or he could go uh, out to his shed and and do what he needs to do to get himself to the level that he always wanted to be, and that's what yeah. he did. He went out to his, uh, his shed and he and he spent like you know ten hours a day practicing the you know the the things that he that always eluded him, the things that he never felt like he was adequate enough to play, and he brought himself up to that level, 
you know, and now he can go out and play with he can go out and play with the best jazz people in the world. The you know Bella Fleck, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ricky Skaggs. You know, I mean he yeah. he's he's such a premier musician now that he can he can he put him he he forced himself to climb to that level. Yeah, and I, I just find that you know incredibly inspiring that he did. That's amazing. It's, I could go on and on about him. I love him so much, and I tried to get him on here, and his people told me that he doesn't like to talk about the past, which doesn't surprise me at all because he doesn't live in the past either, which no. as evidenced by the story you just told. He, yes, I saw yes. him in concert finally about five years ago, and I love him, but it was kind of frustrating too because none of the hit songs sound like you remember them. They're all, you know, they're he does what he wants with them, and he doesn't care. He knows you love his hits, so you're going to come to hear even bits of those, but he's on his own journey. He's doing what he wants, and he dictates the rules, and you're either along for the ride or you're not. And right. people love him enough that they'll go along for the ride. And so I, um, on the one hand, I would love to hear straightforward recreations of the way it is and all that kind of stuff. But on the other, you've got to hand it to him for just being a consummate professional musician. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I did not know. I mean, I knew about Joe. I knew those connections. I didn't know that he started off playing with you. That is wild. Okay. One last thing. So I'm curious. You know, you guys are part of this. So much has been made of the legendary kind of Southern California sound of that mid-'70s. Everything just sounds like everyone's hanging out in Laurel Canyon in, like, cut-off jean shorts and tank tops (laughs) and long hair and smoking doobies and hanging out by everyone's pool and, you know, everyone looks beautiful. And is that, I mean, was this your experience at all being down no, there at that time? Not at all. Not, really? Not, not even close. No. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no. oh, man, you weren't carousing with Linda Rodstad and Don Henley? And... Oh, we, we, got, we got around and, and we, sure. we met people and, you know, and, uh, you know, strange people like Billy Goldenberg, the famous film composer, and uh, mm. Gordon Perry, the chief recording engineer for London Decca Classical. You know, and, yeah. and, we, uh, and, and and of course other players. You know, we you know like we would you know, come up against. But you know, we were our circle of friends was. Um, let's say mine personally. You know, every day I would be around Andre Crouch and the Disciples. Mm-hmm. Or uh, or Chuck Gerard from Love Song, you know I did all their albums and yeah. uh, things like that. So uh, that's kind of that was kind of the hang, you know. Okay. Uh, it wasn't really uh, if there were if there uh, you know there would be a, an occasional party or something, but you know not mm-hmm. you know it wasn't like, it wasn't you know it was that wasn't my scene. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good to know. Oh, I forgot a name. Alan Parsons. Tell me oh, about yeah. Alan Parsons. I mean, yeah, he, when Alan, you worked with him, he had done Dark Side of the Moon already, right? Yes, he had. And, uh, okay. and so when we called him, you know, we called him to, we called every, Gordon Perry, who I mentioned before, uh-huh. you know, hipped us, hipped us to this uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. And, like, we had never heard it. You know, we heard it and, like, oh, my uh-huh. God. You know, it's like, so we called Abbey Road. We, we were thinking we needed somebody to mix our first record. I mean, we knew it had been recorded exceptionally well by a guy named Chuck Johnson and Billy Ford, Thetford. And uh, mm-hmm. and so, but we thought we needed something, you know, extra for the mix down. We call Abbey Road and we ask, hey, can we speak to Alan Parsons? And he goes, speaking? 
you know. <laughs> wow. And so he was coming over for the Grammys for his for the Grammy for the Dark Side of the Moon, and he came to our studio and he heard he heard the uh, you know our roughs uh, of yeah. and you know and so we uh, you know he basically we auditioned for him and and he said he'd love to mix it and uh, so he came over and mixed it and that song was up for that album was up for two Grammys you know for the, yeah for the, mostly for the re, you know the best recording and some audiophiles some audiophile societies regard that record, that first record, as the best recorded piece of vinyl in existence. Really? Yeah. It's it's wow. it's revered for its sonic quality. And a lot of that was Alan Parsons and Doug Sachs, the guy from Mastering Lab who uh, mastered it. Yeah, wow. So I had no idea. For you. Well, yeah. he is a genius. I mean, oh, there's he's no he's question. Right. He's, a, yeah. he's a sweetheart. He's a big teddy bear, sweetheart. Good. Yeah, Good. he's, he's okay. a wonderful guy. So, Burley, tell me what – I want to know – I always ask people a couple of questions. One, I want to know if you have any regrets, if there's a lingering decision that you made that kind of altered the course of the of your career in a negative way. And I don't mean that, you know, the manager or a record label kind of did something to you. I mean, if there was one thing that you did that you kind of uh, – I wish I hadn't made that choice. And, but then, on the flip side, I want to know what just your best, tastiest memory is. When you can't, I can't believe this thing happened to me. What is that thing? Okay, you want the negative and the positive? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay, you can uh, tell me well, the negative first. That way we end on the positive. Okay. okay. Well, the negative, I'd I say I wrote, I have a song I, I I just wrote in the last few years about my, you know, my son going away to uh, get a master's and, you know, going far away. And it's called uh-huh. Never Far Never Far From Home. You know, like no matter how where you go. and uh, yeah. And in it, I, I, this might sum it up. In, a, in it, there's a line that goes, um, "The greatest gift you have is time. Make more of yours than I did mine." Oh, you nice. know. And yeah. So, I guess that's my only um, regret is I wish I had the time back that I yeah. flitted away either by you know, you know, whatever, whatever sure. stupid thing you know that I that I wasted time on. And because uh, now I just realize how precious it is, yeah. you know, and I and I can't I can't get I can't get enough done in a day, you know, right. and then it kills me to think that I might have wasted days, and, right. you know, in that in that period. Um, and the greatest the greatest feeling for me is always going to be uh, is finding my wife. That's yeah, because uh, that's 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 my life. Yeah, that's great. Um, did you ever meet any heroes? Any musical heroes of yours? Oh, did you yeah. Ever share a bit? Yeah, who? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, my my greatest my greatest influence as a drummer was you know Elvin Jones, and yeah, I just, I just remember you know meeting him and you know and and he he grabbed my hand and my hand I have a big hand and my hand disappeared, you know in <laughs> in his hand, and, and it's just I was just overwhelmed by the, just the magnitude of his personality. You know, and and his yeah. just embrace was just like, yeah, amazing. Good, good. Well, um, you put out a lot of music that means a lot to me, Burley. So thank you so much for talking to me. Well, I'm honored that you would say that, and, and thanks for talking to me. Absolutely. There you have it, Burley Drummond. Isn't he the nicest? Such a sweet man. 
I was going to tell you, you may have noticed this was a little bit on the shorter side, and that was on purpose because originally I was hoping to also bring David Pack on here. I want to do a kind of a twofer and hear, you know, not to pit anyone against each other, but to hear the perspective of someone who's still in the band and the perspective of the guy who wrote the hits back in the day. Unfortunately, David Pack turned me down. So uh, we will not be hearing from David Pack, unfortunately. But hopefully you guys got turned on to some new Ambrosia stuff that maybe you didn't know. This song right here is maybe my favorite Ambrosia song. It's nice, nice, very nice. I love this song. I love that name. Uh, now, a little teaser for next week. Uh, next week is a guest that I am so excited about. I have been trying to get this guy on the show for a couple of years. I finally made it happen. He was the, he became the lead singer of one of the greatest rock bands of all time. He was not the original lead singer. The original band, I believe, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is not. But he basically resurrected their career at one point, and now he's not in it anymore. So there's a very interesting story here from a guy with pipes for days, and he's a member of one of the greatest bands ever. So I hope you guys will come back and hear that next week. Also, as always, I want to say a big thank you to the right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for all that you do. You guys know the business by now. You can find us on Facebook and like the page. You can send me a message on there if you want. Uh, either of us, Jan reads those too. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If there's somebody, some band, some artist that you love that you haven't heard from for a long time, uh, let me know and I will see if I can track those people down. Thanks everybody. We will talk to you next Tuesday.